morning. How are you? Hey, lots of exciting things going on at Bayview Glen Church right now. First and foremost, we start camp tomorrow for uh, preschool through grade five, I think is what it is. And hey, Sharif and Mary Lou, do we not know you were going to be here? You did not know? Did you know you were going to be here? Is this a bad thing? Did, did they kick you out? What's going on? <laughs> Uh, sort of. Uh, Sharif and Mary Lou are some international workers that we support at Bayview Glen, and I'm, I'm glad to know that we didn't know you were going to be here. Would you guys say hi to Sharif and Mary Lou? Um, yeah. <clears throat> I love Sharif because he used to be a pancreatic surgeon, and uh, when he when he uh, transitioned into his role uh, with the Pan African Academy of Christian Surgeons in uh, in a country in North Africa, uh, he started to talk about to me, um, you know, he's going to go into more general surgery, and and he said I'm going to have to learn, you know, um, a bunch of stuff about general surgery and and all that. And I said, Sharif, they haven't moved anything, buddy. It's all in the same place. The lungs are where you always remember them. The heart's where you always remember it, but. It's great to see you guys this morning. So listen, we start our camp tomorrow, grade uh, preschool through grade five, and uh, I'm actually wearing my camp shirt this morning uh, because I wanted to support all of our volunteers. We did get enough volunteers, by the way, to serve all the kids this week, so that's awesome. <laughs> some of you, some of you are clapping right now, going, "Thank God it's not me." So that's that's good. That's fine. But for those of you who are serving, we are praying for you this week. We're praying that you survive the week. You have absolutely no idea what you're gotten into. So um, we're so glad that you're serving and investing in the next generation of God's church. Thank you. Uh, speaking of investing in the next generation of God's church, Brandon Bernard. It's his very first day on staff here as our youth director. Brandon. <clears throat> Since he is actually uh, getting paid as of today, you can feel free to ask him your most difficult and challenging theological question. He's got his Bible on him. He can do some sword drills. So uh, welcome Brandon to staff today. We're excited about that. Gosh, what else is going on? Oh, next week we start a series called Yesterday, Today, and Forever. We're talking about the history of Bayview Glen Church, the history of our church, the history of the New Testament church, taking a hard look at where we are today and looking towards the future. We're really excited about that. Um, I told you on a, an email that uh, you'll see some familiar faces throughout this series, and one of the familiar faces you'll see is a guy named Arnie Reimer. Uh, Andy Cherry, our worship pastor, and I had an opportunity to go spend a couple hours with Arnie Reimer uh, a couple of weeks ago and interview him about the early days of this church. For those of you who don't know Arnie, he uh, pastored Avenue Road Church, started in 1969, and then moved that congregation, very small congregation at the time, up here to Bayview and Steeles to our current home. He really was the founding lead pastor of Bayview Glen. Uh, we asked him in that interview, can we call you the founding lead pastor of Bayview Glen? He goes, no, I was not the founding lead pastor. There were some before me, and to call me the founding lead pastor would dishonor their work. That's a humble man. And he was uh, just a fantastic uh, guy to be around that day, and we're going to show you that interview next week as we launch Yesterday, Today, and Forever. It's going to be a great series. After Yesterday, and Today, and Forever, we're doing a series called This Is Us on Marriage and Family. Anybody watch that show on TV, This Is Us? Yeah, it's a great show. Don't, uh, like, you know watch your kid, you know, watch it with your kids. Don't let your kids watch it by themselves. But it's a great show and we're kind of riffing off the This Is Us thing, talking about God's design for marriage and family for eight weeks. And then believe it or not, it will be Christmas time. Can you believe that? And then it will be cold. And it's, the leaves are already changing by my house, which is really sad and disappointing. I just cry my little eyes out in the car all the time. But 
And then somebody actually emailed me the, this week and asked, are we going to return to the book of John? The answer is no. We're just going to stop right here in chapter 8. No. Um, we're we're going to return to the book of John starting in 2018. So we'll just take a little break for a series on vision, series on family and Christmas, and then we'll return to the book of John in January. And so uh, let's just continue that series this morning, uh, the Believe, a journey through the gospel of John. So before we do that, let me pray and we'll get into God's word together. God, thanks. Uh, for being here with us today by your Holy Spirit. We are so grateful that we can just talk to you uh, like a friend and tell you what's on our hearts and our desires and dreams and hopes and disappointments that we can bring anything and everything to you uh, this morning and any day. And so today we bring our hearts and our attention and our focus. God, would you change us uh, by your word and by your Holy Spirit this morning? In Christ's name, the people of God together said, amen. I don't know how your weekend was, but Amy and I had a little bit of an interesting weekend because yesterday um, I had the opportunity to officiate a wedding, which I love, love, love weddings. Uh, I love having the opportunity to celebrate with people. In this particular case, both the bride and the groom had been married before. And so we actually had an opportunity during some pre-marriage counseling stuff to kind of talk through uh, what the Bible has to say about marriage and divorce and God's plan for restoration and redemption and make sure we're squaring with the biblical text and all that stuff, but it was just an absolute celebration of all the things that God had done in their lives. And there are a couple of Bayview Glen folks. In fact, uh, they were here greeting in the 9 a.m. service this morning. Yeah, you have an excuse to not serve? Bull. Um, so they were here greeting in the 9 a.m. service this morning. Loved them so much. And then the day before, uh, we actually got a call from Amy's family that her aunt, who's in her 40s, is gonna discontinue cancer treatment um, because it's not working anymore. So it's time for her to go be with the Lord. And she's got two young kids. And and the day before that, I was on the phone with some people from, uh, from Bayview Glen here that lost their baby at 35 weeks. Um, just a kind of a fluke deal came out of nowhere, and it was just baby was moving and healthy one day and not the next. And so called me and said, I felt like you might understand because you guys went through the failed adoption thing. And I just said, I don't really understand, but I'm so sorry. And so I will be at that service for that little baby tomorrow morning. You know, life kind of throws us curveballs sometimes, right? Like the highs and lows of life, the joys and sorrows. And, and if we don't have a filter or a grid to pass those things through, it's going to be really difficult for us to make sense of them. Uh, maybe you're facing something in your life right now. Your spouse is sick or you're sick or financial hardship or your kid's gone off the rails or whatever. Or maybe it's the, the, the joys of life. Maybe you just got promoted. Maybe you just found a bag of money in the parking lot. I don't know. Maybe everything's awesome for you and just really rocking along. But even in those cases, those things are fleeting or they might bring you contentment for a time or happiness for a time. But uh, in, unless you really have a filter to kind of pass those things through and a grid to place them in, uh, they can kind of make, make mess of our life in a lot of ways. Make a mess of our life in a lot of ways. So here's what Jesus is gonna offer us in John chapter eight today. He's gonna offer us that grid through which, that filter through which we understand the highs and lows, the joys and sorrows of life. And here's what he's gonna do. He's gonna claim that he is the light of the world. If you're jotting down notes today, please just jot that down, that Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is the light of the world. And we may understand this in kind of 21st century context, you know, a post-Thomas Edison world, like Jesus is a light bulb. That's not what he means when he says he's the light of the world. The Romans haven't even, hadn't even invented light bulbs yet by that time, okay? So Jesus, that's not what he means. So we're gonna talk about what he means when he says, I am the light of the world. In the book of John, there are seven of these I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. In this case, I 
I am the light of the world. We actually thought about calling this series the seven I am's from the book of John, but it sounded too Dr. Seuss for me. You know, like I would not eat them on a bus. I would not eat them. I am, you know, I am, I am, I am. So Beside the point, the point is, this is one of seven. We've already come across, I am the bread of life. And this is the second I am statement in the book of John. And this is what we're gonna be talking about all morning. I will give you a fair warning today that there's gonna be a lot of content coming your way. You're gonna drink from a fire hose just a little bit. So I need you to stick with me. I'm gonna talk even faster than I typically talk. Is that okay? Just, it's gonna be like an auctioneer up here. Hey, you know, sorry. Um, Side the point. Point is, stick with me. And for those of you who are note takers, don't try to jot everything down, but I will tell you when we kind of get to major points, you can jot those things down. So that's what we're talking about is I am the light of the world. Remember that John's whole uh, purpose, his goal in his gospel is to help us to believe or convince us to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and by believing have life in his name. And so one of the critical aspects that John wants us to know is that Jesus is the son of God. Indeed, Jesus Jesus says, God in the flesh. But he doesn't just say, he is God, he is God, he is God, he is God. What he does is he gives us uh, evidence that the, to, to the fact that Jesus is God by showing us these signs that Jesus does, like feeding thousands of people or turning water into wine. And he helps us understand specifically what it means that Jesus is God by giving us these seven I am statements. And again, the first is, I, or the second is, I am the light of the world. And that's where we're gonna pick up the text today. John chapter 8, verse 12. If you have your Bibles, John chapter 8, verse 12. If you don't have a Bible, the Bible, there's a Bible in the seat back in front of you. You can grab that one. You can look on with a friend. Make sure you throw in a piece of gum if you're going to snuggle up next to somebody. Uh, you can use your device if you want. There's free Wi-Fi in the sanctuary. It's just baby Wi-Fi. There is no password. And uh, jump, uh, jump on, your, uh, on your Bibles there so we have the, all have the text in front of us. If you don't have any of those things, the scripture, as always, is up here on the screen. Remember last week we talked about John chapter 7, verse 53, the second half through 8, 11, and that was a later addition to the text. And so when we pick up John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus is in the same place that he was at the end of John chapter 7. He's in the temple during the Feast of Booths, and he continues this conversation with the Pharisees. Remember, they were asking a bunch of stupid questions a couple weeks ago. You're going to see the Pharisees continue to ask some really stupid questions this week. And Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 12, he says, uh, John says, again, Jesus spoke to them, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This is our main point this morning. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Here's what the Pharisees are saying to him. Saying Jesus, in the Old Testament, Numbers chapter 23, more specifically in Deuteronomy chapter 17, uh, or 19, chapter 19, verse 15, says that only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall, shall a charge be established. In other words, if you're going to claim this about yourself, you can't just claim it about yourself. You need to have two or three witnesses back you up. But Jesus doesn't want to play their game for a couple of reasons. One is he's already given them two or three witnesses. Remember, he said, John the Baptist is my witness, and the the Spirit of God is my witness, and the Mosaic Law, which you know very well, is my witness. I've already got those witnesses. So Jesus doesn't play this little game, because they've already got what they have the right to ask for. They have the right to ask for it, according to the Old Testament law, but they've already got it. So Jesus responds this way. He says, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. Why? Because I know where I came from, the right hand of the Father. I know the authority that I've got. 
And so my testimony is true. And, and, I love this, I know where I'm going. I know this is just temporary for me. I'm going back to the right hand of the Father. And for that reason, my testimony is true. But you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. He says, you judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. Both my testimony of myself, my witness of myself, and my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. Jesus is reiterating now, I know where I came from. I know where I'm going. I am sent by the Father. Now that he said that, watch. He doesn't play their little game, but, again, but he enters into this dialogue with the Pharisees and say, all right, you want witnesses? Here we go. In your law, it is written. He's referring to what we just read in Deuteronomy, that the testimony of two people is true, okay? I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. There's your two witnesses to who I am and my identity that I'm claiming. Now, watch what the Pharisees ask him. This is really rude. They said, where is your father? Now, check this out. This is why this is really rude. Because remember when Jesus' mom was about 13 or 14 years old, and she was engaged, and she had not been with a man, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, and she went to her fiancé, Joseph, at the time, fiancé at the time, eventually married, and said to Joseph, I know I've never been with you, and I've also never been with another man, but I'm pregnant. Remember this? Remember this? Everybody knows this. Everybody knows that Mary is claiming that she had never slept with a man, that she never had sex with a man, and she got pregnant anyway. Now, if a young girl told you that, I don't know. He told me if I rode his tractor, you know what I mean? Like, that's, I mean, that's, that's not how that happens. Like, that's not how this works. Like, you have to have sex with somebody. And everybody knows that Mary is claiming this about himself, about herself, and about Jesus. And so when they say, where is your father, what are they calling Jesus? You call him a bastard is what they're calling him. And I use that language on purpose. I know it's really strong language, but this is what the Pharisees are doing. They're attacking him in such a personal way. They're attacking his mom, right? I mean, they are after him. Now, if this is me, I do one of two things. I either punch somebody's lights out or tell them to go suck an egg. Like, that's it. Like, I don't, I don't want any part of this. Like, but Jesus is so much more gentle and gracious than I am. <laughs> so measured. Look how Jesus responds. You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father as well. Just so kind. Just so kind, so measured. These things Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. You see the sovereignty of God even in the crucifixion. Again, his hour had not yet come. God is still in total control. We're gonna come back to this verse right here because it's critical in helping us understand what is meant by Jesus is the light of the world. Keep going. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. Here's their conclusion. If Jesus is saying, I'm going somewhere, you can't go. That is, I'm going to hell or I'm going to Hades. That's what they're assuming. The only way you can get there is by killing yourself. And so we're assuming that's what you mean. 
That's not what Jesus is saying. I'm going back to the right hand of the Father, and you can't go. Why? He's about to tell us. Keep going. He said to them, you're from below, and I'm from above. You are of this world. I'm not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. The reason that you can't go where I am going is that you are going to die in your sins. This is not my favorite phrase in all of the Bible, I'll just be honest with you, but John has now repeated it three times in just this very small section of his gospel. He wants us to know that the result of our rebellion is that we would die in that rebellion. The result of us rejecting God is that we would die in that rejection and the consequence would be death, physical, spiritual, emotional, relational, all kinds of death. Paul affirms the same thing in Romans chapter 6, verse 23. He says, for the wages of sin, what you earn because of your sin is death. But Jesus provides an antidote for us to dying in your sin. He says, you don't have to die in your sin if you believe, if you put your active trust in me, which is the goal of John's entire gospel, then you will not die in your sin. And what is it that you have to believe? Jesus says, you must believe that I am he. Now, this small, seemingly insignificant phrase, I am he, is critical to understanding Jesus' self uh, kind of awareness and identity and what he's claiming about himself here. In the original language, the, the Greek is ego eimi. He's saying, I am he. But this word he is added by English translations later on. So it doesn't actually show up in the original uh, Greek because there's just no pronoun there. And I'm glad that we, the English translator added a pronoun. But, it, but we can kind of skip over it and not understand the significance. The significance is this, is that Jesus is not speaking Greek here. He's likely speaking a language called Aramaic, which is a derivative of Hebrew, very, very similar to Hebrew. And in the Old Testament, in Exodus chapter 3, God goes to Moses and he says, Moses, my people are enslaved in Egypt. The Pharaoh has got a hold of them. He's making them build bricks without straw. This is not good. I want you, Moses, to go to Pharaoh and Tell him, let my people go. Okay, the first service responded the same way. You, that's, a, that's funny. I don't care who you are, that's funny. Okay, so he tells him, go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And so Moses responds to this voice that's talking to him from the burning bush. And he's going, man, I probably should do this, but can I learn a little bit more about you? Moses says to God, watch. If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they ask me, what's his name? What shall I say to them? Great question. Here's how God responds. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. This phrase, I am who I am, is eye asher eye in the original Hebrew. This word, I am, is where we get, in the the original language, it's where we get Yahweh from. It's the covenant name of God. This is not God's work. This is not God's activity. This is not God's role. This is God's name. This is his identity. I was uh, at the park with Kaya yesterday and I was swinging on a swing. And I said, what's your name? And she said, Kaya. And I said, who am I? And I thought I would get daddy. And she said, Wook. And I said, 
Luke, great. Um, <laughs> my child is now calling me by my first name. That's parenting fail right there. But that's me. That's who I am. That's my name. That's, that, that encompasses all of my identity and all of my work and, and everything who I am. So when God says, I am who I am, it's, that's his name. That's his covenant name. That's how he introduces himself to Moses. So when Jesus, in John chapter 8, fast forward thousands of years now, is in the temple, he says, for unless you believe that what I am, this is the phrase he's using now. And in Greek, again, it's ego eimi, but remember, Jesus is speaking Aramaic or Hebrew, so the phrase he's using is eye, asher eye, unless you believe that I am. Oh, no. <laughs> this is why they eventually hung him to a tree. This is the claim he's making. Keep going. They said to him, great question, who are you? <laughs> who are you? Jesus answered them, I love his response, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. <laughs> like, I haven't, I haven't tried to hide this. This is who I am. Let's just finish the text here. He says, I have much to say about you and much to judge. But he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I've heard from him. And they did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, that is to say, when you put him on a cross and lift him up, then you will know that I am, again, same language, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many, many responded to the call of Christ, and it's also John's exhortation in his gospel. Many believed in him, placed their active trust in him. So here's what I want to do with our time remaining this morning. I want to speak to two different people. One is I want to speak to those of you who have maybe never placed your active trust in Jesus. I want you to know exactly what Jesus is claiming when he says, I am the light of the world. And my prayer for you, even this morning, even now as you're, as you're sitting in your seat, that you would say, you know what? I am going to place my active trust in Jesus. I am going to believe that he is who he claimed to be. And for the second group of folks, uh, those who are already followers of Jesus, who've already placed your active trust in him, my exhortation to you would be understand what Jesus means when he says, I am the light of the world, and it's not, he's a light bulb, that's not what he means by that. We're going to understand that together, and then Jesus is going to invite us in to that mission of being a light to the world. So, in order to understand this core claim that Jesus is the light of the world. And whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In order to understand that core claim, we have to understand two critical things. The first is the context in which Jesus is talking about this, because the context is so very critical. And the second is that we need to get our minds into a first century Hebrew mindset rather than a 21st century Canadian mindset. So let's do those things in order. First, let's understand context. Second, let's get our minds into the first century Hebrew mindset. So let's talk context. Remember in John chapter 8, verse 30, Jesus, uh, John uh, tells us 
uh, sorry, uh, yeah, go two slides, Micaiah, please. Uh, John tells us that Jesus is at the Feast of Booths, and during that feast, he says to the, or uh, John tells us that as Jesus claimed that he was the light of the world, he spoke those things in the treasury as he taught in the temple. When he says, I am the light of the world, he spoke those things in the treasury as he taught in the temple. Remember I pointed that out when we read it a little while ago? So let's take a look at where that is. Uh, Look up here on the screen. This is a scale model of the temple. This is not the real temple, but this is the temple that Jesus would have been teaching in at the time. Uh, This temple complex is like 35 acres. I mean, it's huge. It's absolutely enormous. This wall on the backside over here is the Western Wall. You might have heard of that. It's about four and a half football fields long. It's absolutely gargantuan. It's a huge, huge complex. Just on the outside of this wall is would, would have been kind of suburban first century Jerusalem, give or take. And just on the other side of that of those houses there would be a little hill uh, called Golgotha, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. Um, this outside court here is the court of the Gentiles. So if you were a Gentile like me, you couldn't have gone past this court here. Uh, just inside this gate, which is the gate called Beautiful, is the court of the women. So if you were a woman, you could not have gone past this court. And inside this court, there would have been 13 receptacles, the temple treasury, where people put their financial offering in when they came into the temple. Those uh, receptacles were shaped like trumpets, like narrow at the top and wide at the bottom. And they sat with the wide part down on the floor and they came up narrow at the top. And people would take a couple of coins, however many they had, and they would throw them in those receptacles. And the more coins they threw in, the more noise it would make. Remember the story about the widow's mite? That's where that happened, if you've heard the story of the widow's mite. So when John tells us that Jesus is in the temple opposite the treasury, we know that he's in the court of women because that's where the temple treasury was. Now check this out. It's going to blow your mind. During the Feast of Booths, which is what is happening right now, this feast where the nation of Israel celebrates God's provision and his harvest and all that he's done and every able-bodied male from all of Israel, whether you live in Jerusalem or outside, all converged on Jerusalem to celebrate. During the Feast of Booths, in that courtyard, go back one slide, Micaiah, thanks. Uh, thanks, Micaiah. She's awesome. She sticks with me. It's unbelievable. Um, During the Feast of Booths, in this courtyard, there would have been multiple candelabras that they lit every night during the feast. And I'm not talking about candelabras like, you know, what's the little guy's name from Beauty and the Beast? Lumiere? Like, I'm not talking about that candelabra. The candelabras in the court of women were over 80 feet tall. I mean, that is absolutely gargantuan. And Jesus is standing right by one of those candelabras and he looks at the Jews and he's saying, I am the light of the world. The ancient historian Josephus would tell us that once those candelabras were lit every night during the Feast of Booths, every courtyard in Jerusalem would have been lit up just because of the court of the women, because of those candelabras. I mean, imagine the heat coming off these things and the light coming off these things. And every night as they lit those candelabras, it would call people to that celebration of the Feast of Booths. Jesus is saying, I am the fulfillment of this feast. 
I am the fulfillment of this feast. Uh, there's a commentator, a Bible scholar, and we have his quote up here on the screen a minute ago. He said, nowhere is the continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament so clear as in the calendar. Nowhere is the continuity between the Old Testament and New Testament so clear as in the calendar. In other words, the Jewish festivals in the Old Testament that God prescribed, Passover, Feast of Tabernacles, uh, all of the festivals of the Old Testament, even the temple itself, they are all shadows of things to come. They all point forward to Jesus. And when Jesus shows up on the scene, he is the new temple, the new Israel, the new Passover lamb. And in this case, the new Feast of Booths, the light of the world, the light, the candelabra of the Feast of Booths. So what is Jesus saying about himself? What can we learn specifically about his character and about God's character when he says, I am the light of the world during the Feast of Booths? Well, in order to learn that, we've got to know a little bit more about the Feast of Booths, don't we? We've got to know a little bit more about what God is doing in his people and why he prescribes the Feast of Booths. And we learn that from Leviticus chapter 23. God says on the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the produce of the land, that is to say, when you have harvested all all your crops, this would have been in September, you shall, say this word with me, celebrate, that's right, like cool in the gang, all right? The feast of the Lord, seven days, keep reading. And you shall take on the first day of the fruit of the splendid trees, branches of palm trees and boughs of leafy trees and willows of the brook, and you shall, say this word with me, rejoice before the Lord your God seven days, keep going. You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It is a statute forever throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. So what's the first thing we know about the Feast of Booths? It was a celebration. That's pretty clear, right? Jesus is the celebration of the Feast of Booths, and that celebration produced joy in the nation of Israel. If you're a note taker, now is the time to start jotting them down, because this is the core principle. This is the foundational principles of the Feast of Booths. It was a celebration. It was a time of rejoicing. It was a time when God's people were grateful and thankful for all that God had done. I mean, it's essentially a seven-day party when they gathered in the harvest of the land and enjoyed it together. And that celebration produced the character trait of joy. The second thing we know about the Feast of Booths is it was a gathering. And when I say gathering, I don't mean just like 10, 12, 15 people in a room. I mean that in the Old Testament, God prescribed that every able-bodied male in all the nation of Israel would converge on Jerusalem for this feast. If you could move, you had to be there. Why? Because the Feast of Booths, celebration and joy and rejoicing are something we do as a community, not as individuals. God wanted to teach his people in that very gathering that community is a core value of who I am and what I'm doing in the world. Finally, here's what we know about the Feast of Booths is that it was a uh, feast of gratitude, a feast of thanksgiving, a feast of rejoicing. Let's read it together. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. In other words, it was a feast of gratitude because God had provided, because God had given them crops once again this year. But look what God specifically says, and I love that. He says, don't reap to the very edges of your field. Imagine a field with me, ready? 
Imagine a field, and you start to harvest the field, and you get out to the very edges, and there's still corn there, and there's still wheat there, and there's still kale there, or whatever it is, all right? And you want all of it, don't you? Because that's the kind of person that you are, and you want to provide for your family. God says, don't go all the way out to the edges. Leave the edges. Don't harvest those. And the second thing he says, watch, he says, don't gather the gleanings either. Sometimes stuff kind of falls off as you're harvesting. You don't get everything picked up together. Don't gather those either. Well, why, why, wouldn't I, why wouldn't I gather those? Look what God says, and I love this. He says, leave them for the, say that word with me, the poor and the foreigner residing among you. I am the Lord your God. So not only is the Feast of Booze a feast of thanksgiving, but that gratitude and thankfulness produces in us generosity towards others. This is what Jesus is saying when he's saying, I am the light of the world. I am the bringer of joy, community, and generosity. I am the cause for celebration. I am the cornerstone on which you build your gathering. I engender and catalyze gratitude in your heart. And the result of all those things is joy, community, and generosity. This is what he's saying. And I don't know about you, but I think our world needs a whole lot more joy, community, and generosity. Don't you think? I mean, joy, this word in the Old Testament and in the, in the New Testament too is simply the absence of fear. I mean, everybody's afraid in our world today. Everybody, everybody's scared of everything. My brother's in technology and all his buddies, his entrepreneur buddies say, if you wanna make a whole lot of money, you develop technology or a product for one of two people. First, golfers, okay? A lot of discretionary time and income, okay? The second type of person that you develop a product for is new moms, why? Because new moms are scared like crazy, right? They're absolutely afraid of everything. They're afraid their kid is going to choke on a Lego or... I should get the Legos off my floor in my house. That's what just uh, went through my head because I got a three-year-old. So moms, it is okay to be afraid sometimes. That's a good thing that God has given you to protect your children. But when you're afraid that your child is gonna choke on like oatmeal, they're not. They're not. It's oatmeal. It's gonna go down their throat, all right? Or if you look on Facebook, it's like that, that thing should be called fear book. I'm telling you because everybody posts fake news and status updates and everybody's afraid of everything everything and we post stuff that people send us from like the prince in Nigeria and if you don't forward this on to 12 different people you're going to have bad luck forever and we oh I better forward it on to a bunch of people I'll forward it on to Pastor Lucas he'll need to know this right and then we'll have bad luck forever why because everybody's afraid of everything and Jesus comes along and he says you know what I didn't give you a spirit of fear a spirit of joy power love self-discipline self-control a spirit of community a spirit of serving one another loving one another caring for one another looking after one another, spirit of generosity where Christians, Christ followers are the first to give away, the first to open up their homes, the first to open up their wallets even, the first to open up their families and relationships and small groups, the first to be generous with time and skills and energy and effort. That's what Jesus means. He says, I am these things and I empower you to do the same. We're quickly running out of time here, so we've got to move on to our second kind of context and framework for understanding what Jesus means when he says that I am the light of the world. The first is the Feast of Booths and those huge candelabras that would have been burning right there in the court of women as he preached this message. The second is this Old Testament concept of light. So when we think of light now, we again, we think of light bulbs and we think of all kinds of different things, but in the Old Testament for these very religious people, 
people that were listening who knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards, that's not immediately would have, would have come to mind when they thought of light. What would immediately have come to mind when they thought of light and jot these things down if you're a note taker is that light was God's first creative act. Light was God's first creative act. Remember, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was void and without form, and the Spirit of God hovered over the surface of the deep, and God said, let there be, say the word with me, light, right? And there was light. That's God's first creative act. The second thing that they would have thought of is that light is God's presence in the Old Testament, whether it's the Shekinah glory of God that dwelt over the Ark of the Covenant in the temple, whether it was the pillar of fire that led Israel by night as they wandered through the wilderness, light represented God's presence with his people. Light represented God's salvation. The prophet Isaiah would say this, that God's people who once dwelt in darkness have seen a great light. And then we find out in the early chapters of Luke that that light is Jesus as Mary Mary speaks that prophecy, and as we see that prophecy uh, unfold in the life of Christ. And finally, light was God's revelation. As the prophets uh, spoke God's truth to God's people, it was as if they illuminated the truth of God. It illuminated that which was true of God. And by the time Jesus shows up on the scene, those prophets had been quiet for 400 years. There hadn't been any light shed on the darkness any new revelation of God. And Jesus is saying now, I am that revelation. I am the embodiment of God. I am revealing him to you. So when he says, I am the light of the world, if we understand that from a first century Hebrew mindset in an Old Testament context, what Jesus is saying is that I am all of these things. Just as light was God's first creative act, I am God's first recreative act. I am initiating the renewal and redemption of all things. I am initiating God's kingdom. I am initiating God getting back for himself the creation that was once perfect that we ruptured. I am that light. I'm God's first recreative act. He's saying that I am God's presence with you. You don't have to long for him anymore. As the new covenant would say in Jeremiah chapter 31, that that, that the people of God would know him internally, inside, and the spirit would dwell with them. Jesus is saying, I am God's very presence with you. He's saying that I am God's salvation and I am the only way to salvation. And I offer that to you as God's light of salvation. And I am God's final revelation, the very living word of God. God become flesh. I am these things. Okay, that was the fire hose. So let's review. And then I want to talk to, again, two different people. One, Christ followers, and two, skeptics. Review. When Jesus says, I am the light of the world, he does not mean he's like a light bulb in a room and it's dark and you turn the light on and light gets shed on everything and you can see stuff better. He does mean that. He does mean that. But but he means far more than that. He means that he is the fulfillment of the Feast of Booths, that the Feast of Booths foreshadowed him. He is the bringer of joy and community and generosity. And when we draw near to the light, we experience joy like never before. We experience community as God designed it. And it catalyzes us towards generosity because God is such a generous God. 
And he means that he is God's first recreative act, that he initiates the restoration of all things where things have gone wrong and broken. Jesus is initiating that restoration. He is God's salvation. He is God's presence. He is God's revelation. Is everybody with me what Jesus is claiming here? Nod your heads and we'll keep going. Now watch this, now watch this. I'm gonna blow your mind. Well, better, 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 better yet, it's better said this way. Jesus is gonna blow your mind. Because in Matthew chapter five, what does Jesus say to you? You are the light of the world. Whoa. Just let it sink in just for a minute. You are my hands and feet, Jesus says. To a, a group of scalawags, fishermen, sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes, people who have completely come off the rails and broken their lives, you are the light of the world. I'm the light of the world. I'm not the light of the world. I'm not going to know. Jesus say, no, bring joy where there was no joy. And push back on fear. Bring community and relationships and restore your neighborhoods and the people around you. Because that's who I am and that's what I've called you to be and do. Be generous as God is and was and is and continues to be generous with you. Just as I was God's first recreative act, now you join with him in that ministry of reconciliation and you redeem and restore all things around you. You proclaim God's salvation. You shed light on God's truth. You are the light of the world. Now that's awesome. It's a little heavy. (laughs) But isn't that cool? That Jesus comes along and he says, I am the light of the world. And we say, wow. And then he, figuratively speaking, passes the torch on to us. So cool. So cool. For those of you who may have never put your trust in Jesus before, I want to give you an opportunity to do that today. And and here's how I want to do it. Uh, I I want to show you this picture of a guy up here on the screen who who lives in Brazil. Um, He's got a little cult. A cult of about 12 people. And uh, he's got a little personal assistant who uh, has to charge his iPad and iron his garments. Um, he calls himself uh, the, the, the Christ, the Son of God. He, 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 uh, he reinterprets New Testament passages to say, you know, Revelation chapter 5 says that uh, the, the Messiah, the Son of God, is going to come on the clouds He says, and for me, that means I fly on airplanes. That's what that means. I come on the clouds. I mean, he is just, uh, he's he's really one of a couple of things, right? He's claiming that he's the Messiah. He's claiming that he's the son of God. And he's got this little compound, this little cult thing that he's doing in, in, in Brazil, okay? So he's one of a couple of things. One, he is absolutely fruit bat crazy. You know what I mean? Like he is just completely Looney Tunes. That's one. Two, is he's a madman and a deceiver, right? That he knows this is not true of him, but he's telling people in order to wield power or authority or amass wealth or something. How many of you think he's crazy? Raise your hand. Raise your hand. Come on now, raise, raise him high. Okay, this isn't the real Jesus, so don't panic. It's not like, you know, be like, I think he's crazy. Well, joke's on you, that's him. That's not him, okay? <laughs> not him, okay? How many of you think, how many of you think he's crazy? Raise your hand. How many of you think he knows what he's saying is a lie and he's lying in order to do something? Okay, okay. What's our third option? Is that it's true. 
right? Right, like there, there are no other options here. The claims that Jesus made 2,000 years ago are not any less audacious than this guy's claims. They're not any less audacious. We can't noodle with his language and push and pull it around so it's a little more comfortable for us. Even Andy Notiz talked about this a couple weeks ago. I love it. He said that our goal, and Jesus' goal, is that our view of him is correct and not comfortable. And we noodle with it all the time to make it comfortable. But it ain't that comfortable. I mean, our options are this. Jesus is either nutty as a fruitcake. He, he's, he's the world's most deceptive, I mean, evil mastermind that the world has ever known because he knows full well that these guys are about to get killed for believing in him and he just keeps telling them anyway. Or, or, and this is what I think, that he really is who he says he is. He really is the light of the world. He really is God in the flesh. He really does have authority. He really is the king. And so when we make that conclusion, which is really one of only three logical conclusions, now our response is one of two things. Either I don't want any part of him. He's not king for me. Or or I'm gonna place my active trust in him and believe in him and follow him. And in following him, he will give me the light of life. Would you pray with me? As a band and worship team come back up, I just want to invite uh, folks in the room to make one of two choices today in responses. One, for those of you in the place that would call yourself a Christ follower, Jesus has placed a light in your hand, a light of joy, community, and generosity to be his presence, to be his hands and feet, to reveal the truth about him, to join with him in the renewal and restoration and recreation of all things. That's what we've been charged with. Where can you do that this week? Where can you bring joy where there's fear? Where can you bring community and relationship where there's brokenness? Where can you be generous where somebody needs it? I invite you to make that choice today. And second, there's a group of folks in the room that have maybe never trusted Jesus before, never placed their active trust in him. And hopefully I've made very clear today what Jesus claims about himself. There's no way around it. There's no way we can massage his words to make them more comfortable. He's claiming that he's God. And 2,000 years later, we're reading a book all about it. My invitation to you this morning would simply be this, just to pray a simple prayer in your heart. Say, Jesus, unless I believe in you, I'm gonna die in my sin and my rebellion, but I don't wanna do that. I wanna place my active trust in you today as King of Kings, Lord of Lords, and light of the world. And rest assured, if that's the first time you've prayed that prayer today, you should know that you've been given the light of life, that you will not walk in darkness. You have a place and a home and belonging here in the community of God's church. And Jesus walks with you each and every day. And one day, when you die, you will not die in your sin, but you will die and spend eternity with him. And even right now, he entrusts to you that light of life. Only one time the Bible says, that heaven throws a party. And it's right now that someone places their active trust in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, and by doing so, receive life in his name.
As we conclude today, let's sing together that Jesus is the only answer to every question, the only way to salvation, the only revelation of God, the initiation of his recreation. He brings joy, community, and generosity, and it's Jesus and only Jesus. Let's stand and respond together as we sing.